In this episode of the Austin Spotlight, I chat with Michael Barnes, co-founder and CEO of Viva. We discuss his early career starting off as a teacher to transitioning to the startup world and his startups that have helped teachers as well as renters. Hope you enjoy the episode and would love it if you'd subscribe to the podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is Troy Schlicker of Reserve Realty here with the Austin Spotlight, and I'm joined today by Michael Barnes. How's it going, Michael? I'm doing very well. How are you doing today, Troy? Appreciate. I'm doing well. Uh, appreciate you taking the chance or taking the time to, to jump on the podcast and stuff with me. Um, Michael is the CEO of Viva Equity Fund, and so we've had the chance to connect very briefly um, through some Facebook uh, stuff uh, that way, but kind of wanted a chance to bring him on and talk a little bit more about his his journey here in the uh, Austin startup and, and venture capital world. So again, appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just kind of kick off with a little bit of storytelling and, and let you take it from there, Troy. Perfect. Um, I think a lot of people are curious about, you know, how someone ended up in Austin. Are they that rare species of sort of native Austinite? Um, and I'm, I think I'm sort of a hybrid. Um, my grandmother was born in Oklahoma. My mom was born in Dallas. And so Austin is kind of a natural progression south. But it took me uh, a while to get here. I uh, lived in six states growing up. Texas was one of them. And I spent about four years in Round Rock, Austin area um, uh, in high school and, and late middle school. And uh, ended up coming back to Texas after college. Uh, I'm a big service uh, junkie, really big on impact in that regard. And so I actually took an offer from Teach for America to teach in the Rio Grande Valley, so even further south, uh, Texas, and uh, did that for seven years and really loved the the premise of helping students and their families, you know, make a difference in their lives, right? And achieve something uh, in terms of witnessing them unfold their potential. Um, but there are these structural issues that show up when you try to go and just, you know, be a great teacher, specifically in that context. And uh, I ended up back in Austin getting my PhD and helping run a charter school to pay the bills um, while I stepped back and contemplated the challenge of education in particular. Um, you know, when you're in a high poverty and diverse region like the Rio Grande Valley uh, specifically, um, there's almost this trauma of poverty that can consume you if you don't have allies, if you don't have resources, if things like local parochial politics come into play and distract from student achievement. So there was this opportunity to come back to Austin and, and step back and say, okay, what can I do? And then my own educational background includes a master's in computer science. So already for fun, I had been helping nonprofits and even municipalities solve um, software and hardware problems like networking and you know, websites and stuff like that. And so coming to Austin was a chance to you know, surveil the landscape and also specifically work on social impact apps. And uh, that was 2013. So that's where I'm kind of in the middle, right? I've been here um, in and around Austin for the better part of the last decade. And that journey was very exciting for me. So that's kind of my backstory. Yeah. Very cool. Well, you mentioned kind of um, having a passion for service. Was that something you've always had kind of growing up as a kid or something that you got more into uh, later on in life? Or where did that kind of stem from? Yeah, I think I maybe had this sense, um, and I forget the philosopher that said it before, like Harry Potter, but you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, and I think, 
Spider-Man, I think. Yeah, Spider-Man. I think there's been a few iterations. Probably, probably. Yes. And um, basically, when uh, I was growing up, you know, I'm a white male with sort of an abundance of privilege and was affirmed by the education system as, you know, gifted and talented, uh, successful in arenas like speech and debate and even essay contests. So I had this sense that I could be a positive contributor to society. Um, and personally, if I was just like serving my own individual needs, I might be off in a forest somewhere appreciating nature, uh, you know, maybe on a stage in theater, which was a joyful experience. But I had this sense that if I just tried to find my own corner of the world, that the chaos of, of especially social and political discord might come around and eventually un unsettle me, right? So I think uh, climate change and global warming has a similar effect on, on societies across the globe. So I just had this sense at somewhere in the range of like 12 to 17 that I needed to go out there and serve because otherwise we wouldn't have a world that I could enjoy. Um, so, um, you know, we inherit the space. We don't necessarily uh, create the space we're born into. And so I, it just, yeah, was, was very top of mind throughout college. It was an opportunity to actually demonstrate a lot of that. I did some political organizing, community organizing, legislative organizing, and I really wanted to be a journalist, but that industry was so treacherous and unstable that uh, I decided to go into teaching and was very grateful for that stroke of luck and, and courtesy to Teach for America. So yeah, it, it was something ingrained in me um, and, and kind of a choice I made at a young age. Yeah. You, um which is awesome. You, you mentioned kind of dealing with the, you know, again, being the te teacher versus, uh, you know, I, you know, one of the wonderful things is, you know, the U S kind of pioneering the public education system for, you know, for like, and like a lot of other, um, well-off countries and stuff. And so that's awesome on the flip side, because it's been, uh, run by states or local municipalities like they it's not necessarily always as efficient not that it should be as efficient say as business but you have this interesting juxtapose of trying to make something that we do need it to be efficient to be as effective as possible but also there isn't the same type of business goals that you would have in a traditional traditional business how have you um, you mentioned kind of with your computer science background how have you kind of tried to meld those two worlds, because they say it, it would be, in some cases, it would be easier to avoid that public arena and be like, oh, well, I can be, be profitable and do this and see this very specific outcome and get paid for it that way. Uh, versus, you know, a lot of people who go into teaching who unfortunately last for a very short amount of time because of all the resistance and challenges that it provides that way as well. Yeah, exactly. So to the first part, definitely my seven years in the classroom, which is uh, longer than some and less than others, including my wife, who is in the classroom for more than 10 years. Um, but it, it was definitely a very long sort of tour of duty in a challenging space because um, every year I was more and more confident that students are resilient, that they're amazing, that their natural tendency is to grow, learn and unfold their ability. If only the adults and their egos and their misguidance could kind of step out of the way and help facilitate what is actually, in my opinion, natural student tendency toward growth. Um, and it's, it's very tricky because in the Rio Grande Valley, in which I looked at, there was explicit sort of racism and structural racism in the Jim Crow era. Um, and when the community rose up and took power back for itself, it wasn't able to go back to any sort of indigenous or cultural form of, communi uh, of community education. It inherited the system that we have, right? 
with state impositions like No Child Left Behind that constrain local decision making. Uh, state and federal rather conditions like No Child Left Behind and state testing um, that have maybe good ideas, like aspirations in mind, but actually constrain local control over the schooling environment. And you can't always do what you think is best for a child. And then that pressure starts to, um, you know, disincentivize the right behavior in superintendents and principals. And everyone's focused on a sort of bottom line, which doesn't necessarily, it's like a one size fits none system, right? It doesn't quite fit anyone well. And you just get, I mean, talk to kids and they'll laugh if you just make a reference to school and whether it was a good experience. It's, it's very difficult. And so that's the irony. Yeah, we've got America with plenty of wealth and plenty of spend per student comparatively around the world. You've got innovation in really small pockets like San Francisco Bay and you know private schools and many other, um, even magnet schools I've seen throughout the country have amazing innovations, but nothing is achieving scale there. And you're absolutely correct that I was in, you know, traditional local, you know, public sector. I've worked for state and federal and nonprofit. And to some extent, I sought refuge in the private sector. I ended up in the private sector because it was simple. If, are you there, Troy? All right, I'll just I'm keep here. going. Okay, just making sure. I was like, wow, I'm in, I'm in the window. Yeah. But Basically, if, um, if in the private sector, you create something of value and that generates revenue, you possess the revenue to help replicate the model. Whereas ironically, in nonprofit and in public spaces, you could do something amazing and these lowercase p, like personal political forces that control the financing can be yanked away from you and really good models can be killed because you don't have sort of vertical control over the financing of what happens. So ironically, I ended up in private sector, um, to your point, as a way to test impact without um, having, you know, finances taken away if you succeed. And, uh, and our first startup was called Teacher Talent, which helped solve uh, recruiting and hiring for schools. And I can talk more about that as well. So. No, I say it's, it's interesting because uh, I really do believe that in most cases, most people in, you know, political, you know, superintendents, you know, federal government, state governments, stuff like that, like they, really do want to help kids and want to better stuff. Obviously there's a wide spectrum of what's the best way to do that. Uh, and so that brings about its own challenges. But like you say, the, the, you know, a superintendent who now is, is graded on uh, pun intended, no, no child left behind is, has a very different mindset on, in their day-to-day -day life than someone who's focused on, each individual child and, and not that they don't most people again most educators because that's how you generally go into the superintendents and principal roles and stuff like that care you know care about the individual kids but it's just a very different juxtaposition of you know trying to care for each individual kid but hey my funding is based off this wide testing metric that um while important doesn't really um isn't is too cookie cutter to really be right for everyone. Yeah, and I, I, I know so many um, principals and superintendents and uh, school board members and state leaders of school systems. So people that everyone else looks up to as such a powerful figure, but when you talk with them, what they feel is constraint. They, they feel all the ways in which they're uh, unable to go and do just that one thing that their conscience says they should do. So I think it's really tough it's easy to kind of say, well, I'd do it differently or we should do it better. But if you haven't been inside that sort of hot seat of leadership, 
I think you don't see the irony that these really powerful and often very compassionate, caring leaders suddenly are, are, sh are shackled and constrained in ways, both maybe it's psychological, but also real sort of political and, and even um, sort of numerical um, uh, functions that kind of constrain their ability to do well. And, uh, and that's where, as unusual as it was in terms of my planning, it wasn't what I planned. I found this lane in private sector where both school and now housing were areas where I feel like we can make an impact and they're actually correlated, right? That a lot of school challenges are tied to um, de facto sort of financial segregation of housing based on where you can afford to live. And in Texas, people don't know this, it's actually a felony to claim that you are zoned to a school that you don't reside in the territory of. So like we've got these little fiefdoms where if you can't afford to buy into a certain school district zone, it's a felony to try and get your kid, you know, into that educational opportunity. So. And so, right. So for me as a realtor, that's something that I deal with a lot as well, where you get people that really want to be in a certain school district or, uh, you know, school district or, or even smaller middle school, high school, depending on uh, one, either the perception of what the, those schools offer, the, you know, the, the star scores, the, so in some cases of programs, which at that point, I'm like, that makes more sense as someone who grew up in a very small town. So you didn't have all the extra bells and whistles with a lot of different school things. I always kind of tell most of my clients that like I, it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a lot of cases. Right. Like so Westlake here in Austin is considered the top school district in, in the area and one of the best in the state and do like, yes, because it costs a lot of money to live in Westlake, there's more money that maybe goes to the, that school, which does help it provide more stuff. But in a lot of cases, the parents of the students put a premium on their kids getting a good education. And so therefore the kids get a better education because it's more, it's something that they're required to do. Where in a lower income area, if you have a single parent, who now has to work two jobs, not that they don't want their kid to do well in school, but they have a harder time really enforcing that and, and sending their kids to maybe a tutor or being able to watch them do homework and help them do homework, right? And so is it really the, is it the school district that's always the one that's making the students uh, achieve what they're looking to achieve? Or is it a lot of the other social, social and um, economic forces that kind of propel that, which then make the school look good as a side benefit. We might've had a quick break up there for a second, but, but yeah, but I, but I followed the, the logic, which is, which is correct. There are certain districts where the resources, including time, right. As a luxury allow robust PTAs and even private funding of special programs and opportunities that supplement public funding. And then there was this famous 2012 equity report in Austin that found that dollars that may have been allocated for special needs in East Austin, there's no uh, compliance mechanism from the state. They actually feel powerless when they hand money over to a district. There's no confirmation that the funds flow to the specific purposes for which they're legislatively allocated. So money was just had a tendency to flow West again, based maybe on parents being active and demanding things and asking for more, there was actually more funding for people on the west side of Austin ISD than the east side of Austin ISD. Um, and you had to sort of do this like systems analysis because that data is not tracked or otherwise made manifest. 
Um, but on, on the same time, there are amazing schools in Austin. Um, the two I'm thinking of right now in particular are public schools that uh, have beekeeping clubs that then uh, make honey, that then they even sell at a market to have, like test entrepreneurship, um, that partner with Top Golf for like golf programs that have gardens in their, you know, classrooms that are set up like little houses where they collaboratively work to tend to the needs of uh, the home, including the garden and even like, you know, do the laundry when they make the sheets dirty from art class and stuff. So there are innovative models. And I think that's what we need more of is people saying, what are my values? Test scores are a, a, a metric, but what are the values that you hold for your students? And I think that's probably it is. We just need more uh, avenues for parent advocacy in part. Um, yeah. That, that and what's the end goal, right? Like our education system now has been built really well in getting, trying to get kids into college, which um, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, there's a lot of kids who, you know, go into massive amounts of debt to go to college for a degree that doesn't get them a job that they want, a job that they don't even like or two, a job that doesn't even pay the interest on their, on their college debt. And so, uh, again, not that it's an easy thing to try and change an entire school system in a country, but, right, like the end goal it should be to, per, to one, you d it is definitely beneficial to have kids that can read well and do math and, um, you know, do have reasoning skills and social skills and all these other things that are just value, valuable on a day-to-day -day basis. But also it's about, you know, lear you know, learning to do a skill to provide for yourself and your family, right? And so in a lot of cases, and I do think, fortunately, we're starting to see more of things like apprenticeships and trade schools and some of those things become more in vogue, partially because you can make a lot of money to be an electrician nowadays because not a lot of people have gone into, into some of those different trade fields. But uh, that that it isn't just this one goal of getting kids to college, I think it is another beneficial thing that hopefully continues to gain momentum because it's not necessarily the best avenue for everyone, especially in the way that today's workforce works. And again, with the debt that it accumulates for a lot of people. Yeah, and I think you know there are some things there where even if you go to college, how do you make sure that the environment is one that doesn't just um, kind of profit off of this train of students. And what happens is if you look at the last few decades, the proportion of financing for a college education has shifted from state and federal sources to the individual students' debt load and or their parents' ability to pay. So we've shifted funding for higher ed on average from public sources to the individual students' resources. And if they don't have resources, obviously that means uh, debt. So it's actually not even per inflation, We've just grown significantly the amount of debt we're expecting each student to shoulder. And I think about things like, why did it have to be 128 credits? Like that seems super random. Um, and I know in South Texas and specifically the Rio Grande Valley was one of the first to capitalize on dual enrollment programs that said, well, I can just take a slightly more rigorous high school course and dual my credit for high school and college and save myself my first year and even my second year and save the money and actually go invest in higher ed in the classes that are more exciting, that are more you know, forward facing in terms of your career and maybe get out in two years if I want um, and still go get a JD or something, but actually be two years ahead financially and time-wise. So I think there are, there are hacks and maybe cracks in these structures, but um, certainly could do with a lot more uh, pressure on the systems to change, I think. Yeah, or, and or um, 
even just the knowledge of it, right? So I actually didn't grow up in Texas. And so we, we did have some of, some of those similar programs, at least starting when I was younger, I had younger siblings that took advantage of some of those kind of things to, again, you know, basically take a year of college as a senior in high school, because, you know, it was a lot of similar coursework anyway, just, you know, potentially a slightly harder class. Um, and in some cases, probably not even, not even that, but I also think, right. Like what, this, what the school system was for me over 20 years ago versus if I were to have have kids now who went into the school system, like, yes, I'd have an idea of what it's like, but, you know, I get the chance to talk to parents and students occasionally. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot different than what I grew up with. And so even, even having some of those things, but really making it even aware of what some of those options are, I think are, are critical because I think there are options that people would take advantage of if they really understood what's out there. Yeah, and, and one silver lining, um, if, if we may, you know, COVID obviously was um, a tragic plague, if you will, upon society and the world. It presented an opportunity to unify against a common threat, right? And I think, unfortunately, we doubled down on, on fractious politics and missed a huge opportunity to, you know, rally our resources um, as I think America has taken that opportunity in past times, right? And I'm sure there was dissent at each prior time, but there was almost groups that reveled in the dissent this time. Um, people who probably know better and are doing so for their own political capital and other purposes. Um, and I say that because just as context, there is a silver lining in a sense that, you know, there's an opportunity for education to be advanced in new ways, in ways that democratize access to high quality programs, virtual education, the sort of flexible models that had a chance to sprout. Um, and I will say that in the private sector in 2017, so, so I ended up coming to Austin in 2013. I got my PhD in education, policy and leadership, which was that chance to step back and looked at the sort of systemic effects on education. And I also ran a charter school um, for two years and, was working on you know getting involved in entrepreneurship this whole time got to be kind of a student of entrepreneurship and in 2017 i took a model that i had developed for our first customer which was the charter school around uh recruiting gathering great data on recruiting prospects and then you know marketing them and bringing them into a school so that you can have absolutely the right teachers especially when you're taking on a hard challenge like creating a new school environment in a predominantly low income uh, uh area right you can't you know, take fresh teachers that are going to kind of uh, cause students to struggle and suffer. You want almost like veteran teachers ready to jump in. So, but, but what I say is when we launched that in 2017, the VC and funding landscape was by thesis hostile to education, especially K-12, right? It was 94 out of 100 angel and venture investors in the first 10 seconds of, of conversation would say, we don't do education. We don't do education. Um, and there was just a small club that got oversaturated with demand. And if they already had a portfolio company, you were kind of shut out of a corner of the, uh, of the sector. And um, now post COVID with all of the Zoom and related educational technologies taking flight, certainly in higher ed, it's hotter than ever. But even in K-12, I think there's more appetite for educational investments. So again, as a silver lining, there is this sense that we may be able to evolve new models. I think Texas, they did come in the third, uh, the third uh, session just now and try and address um, funding for virtual, uh, but they should have done it in the first session. That should have been priority number one, right? Is how do we lock in the long-term models that are going to come post 
COVID that people aren't going to want to give up um, for safety in the short term because we're not done with COVID yet, but also long term because flexibility and education just makes sense, right? Um, so, so I think there's a lot of financial and uh, sort of social political will to, to innovate in education right now. Texas probably didn't seize that opportunity as quickly as it could, but I think we still have that opportunity. Sure. No, and unfortunately, like you mentioned, there's uh, been a lot of like there's been a lot of instances in the last year and a half, and even before then, where it seems like the you know certain things that should be priority get kicked to the back burner for other ideological um, concerns or or con or concerns that are going to benefit the um, people financially, right? Versus really what's in the greater good of um, the population as a whole, unfortunately. Um, you mentioned that education is kind of one of the pillars that you've been working on and stuff. And I know with your uh, Viva, uh, Viva Fund that also housing has been another kind of component with that. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about where, what, what you guys have been doing there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to draw a connection from one to the other, uh, as I already indicated, where you live has a lot to do with the quality of your education, right? And in America, for decades, it's been referenced, you know, your zip code uh, kind of has an impact on your educational opportunity, your net worth, et cetera, right? These, these derivative functions, especially the zip code you're sort of born into and where you uh, grow up. And uh, there's also models like the community schools model that says, okay, well, school is important, but we need to look at the whole family context, the living context, the home situation. And in education, you see a lot of mobility issues with unstable housing. You see um, when somebody is on the edge of or even becomes homeless, that obviously affects their education. So I already did have some exposure to housing. In fact, in my PhD program, I kind of thought that like housing is the one lever that all of the education policy I had focused on wouldn't touch. And therefore we could only make so much impact, um, especially because housing is not just about where you live and your proximal access to opportunities, but it is the single biggest driver of uh, an average American's net worth, right? Uh, especially home ownership specifically and having that asset. Um, and so that's kind of a dividing line uh, in uh, wealth gaps and equity gaps, uh, both financial and social equity gaps in America. So the, the precursor to this is in 2017, we created a startup called Teacher Talent. We went out to do one thing, which is to create an HR platform to go out there and find the best teachers, market to them, and then find the best fit schools so that they stay in education and don't quit. A lot of teachers think that there's not uh, they only know their own four walls of their classroom and their school. They're not aware that they could be in a lot of different environments. Like in the private sector, people are always shopping. They're always having drinks with recruiters and being hit up in education. That certainly wasn't the case in 2017. And it's still pretty much not the case today. So we built um, a platform and we we did go and, and the other six out of 100 investors, uh, including Techstars, supported us in you know, putting together a few hundred thousand dollars um, which meant we did it on the cheap and we built uh, a, a platform that when we unlocked the revenue challenge of being kind of an end-to-end -end solution, sourcing data all the way through hire, which is very different from the tech sector. We have all these little niche partners that help you on your journey. We were able to unlock our, our pricing and we soared to almost 200,000 per month in, in recurring revenue, which was uh, insane. And then we exited to um, uh, a company that could help us capitalize, get my starving entrepreneur salaries in healthcare, and today, because of, of what we started, you know, thousands of schools across America have access to high quality um, tools that help them find the best fit campus. And um, you know, we, we still continue to keep an eye on, on our efforts there, but 
we sort of had a mission accomplished moment. I think that was very powerful. Um, and then what that does to somebody who was a service junkie and working in low income communities as a teacher is, you know, the, you know, influx of capital gains and, and, and wealth that you now possess, even if it's not impressive to a sort of West Coast, you know, unicorn exit, it can make a significant difference with the founders and the communities that, that I personally had been working in. So we took those capital gains and we started advising and investing in other diverse teams pursuing social impact ventures, specifically with a focus in the Austin area. Um, and some of those have, have gone on to a lot of success with a little bit of seed capital and support. They also have gotten into top accelerators and raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not in a few cases, about a million dollars. So, so that was just like, okay, we did something. And while I'm in my sort of NDA period of transitioning our technology to you know, the, the future vehicle, um, let me share back right away. Let me give back to the community what I've gained on this journey but then there's, there's also that thought of, okay, now what can I do next? Mm -hmm. And I think that's how we got to, to housing. Um, it actually started all the way back in 2017 in Kansas City, Missouri, where I was uh, there for Techstars, uh, was the program we got into because of the timing. Um, and I was riding with an investor in an Uber. And I was thinking, just like we have the ability to not own a car and have this shared ownership model of cars, so to speak, cars on demand, um, at some point in the future, I believe there would be housing on demand, right? That people would want to be able to say, you know what, I feel like living in Seattle for three months, um, or I feel like living in Boulder, Colorado for, for six months, or you know, Tampa Bay, Florida, um, or you know, Barcelona. Um, and so this idea that at some point millennial demand, which as a realtor, I'm sure you've seen that like parents' houses and even some of the McMansions, again, Austin aside and, and the recent real estate boom aside, there are a lot of like larger homes that people don't want to inherit from their parents. They don't want that sort of uh, possession to possess them. And they want to be what I would call both uh, digital domestic nomads. So digital domestic nomads, as well as the classic you know, uh, nomads that we see traveling the world and, and posting Instagram stories every day, especially post COVID, people are saying, I can live anywhere. Now, again, we thought about this in 2017, again, COVID being an accelerator of this trend, with the push for remote, uh, you know, full-time remote opportunities, um, why not be able to use an app to pause your current lifestyle and start somewhere else on demand? Um, and so that was the, the first inkling. What we also discovered from 2017 through 2020 was that while this may be attractive to millennials and you know, tech workers and people with affluence like Elon Musk, who just sold all of his houses and is now you know, living a sort of uh, nomad lifestyle in Austin and the Rio Grande Valley down there in Boca Chica with SpaceX. Um, so, you know, it also is a potential opportunity for affordable, for affordable housing. Because what we thought was, well, if people are going to be moving between one house and another, it's almost like if you and I owned this broad housing network, we'd want to get a derivative stake in the underlying portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is, what if you could dynamically choose your house from among this network and still have a percentage of your rent, you know, in that context, go into an investable fund that grows over time, like a mortgage, kind of a simulated mortgage, if you will. And so that's, that's literally what we uh, decided to build and did research in 2020 and are kind of still stealthily soft launching, even though we have our platform and our first houses in the network and our first uh, families in the network, we realized this is very powerful because someone with low income can build wealth 
from what traditionally would have been a renter model because they can have access, they can have a, uh, you know, relative affordability and they're working hard, but now a piece of that rent goes into an investment fund that builds over time. And uh, I think that appeals to, to a few different segments in the market. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, definitely been, I mean, probably the two biggest things that I've seen in the year and a half with housing, right? One, like I, th I think a lot of people were initially caught off guard with how much home prices ramped up, right? Every, and again, it really all it was was initially a little stall of like what's actually going to happen with being stay at home and stuff. And then it was kind of the natural, well, if I'm going to be stuck here, I'd much rather be stuck here with more, more space. So you have all the people moving from studio apartments in New York City to a place where they can actually, you know, walk, walk around and stuff. Um, but that that rise in home prices has, you know, while it's unfortunate if someone now the home that they wanted to buy for 800,000 is now a million and maybe they can't afford it. So they have to get a little bit less house, but it does put the most pressure on the first time home buyer because the, you know, in, in Austin, the first time home buyer was maybe able to find something in the $250,000 range that now is over 300,000. And for a lot of them, they can't afford that difference in price. And so it makes getting into a home, which is, has historically been one of the best ways for someone to build wealth because it's kind of that automated savings uh, plan and stuff uh, has made it, has made it that much more challenging. We do at the same point in time, I, we do see a lot more people who are like, Hey, I can Airbnb or VRBO a bunch of different places to live for, you know, a month or two at a time, 90 days at a time, as long as that flexibility is, is allowed. And it'll be interesting to see how that continues to progress as some of, obviously some of the biggest companies in, in the U S have kind of said that employees will be able to stay remote indefinitely. But uh, the more data you start to get, the more it seems like that may not really be the best way for a lot of these companies potentially to work long term. Not that they'll ever truly probably go back to a, hey, now come into an office nine to five, uh, five days a week, but that there may have to be some balance in order to um, in order to really get the best productivity, because the one one of the factors that I think and a lot of people didn't necessarily take into effect when they said, yeah, I just work remotely forever is that a lot of these teams who were re working remotely in 2020 were teams that already knew each other and had these in-person bonds prior to going virtually where when all you do is go virtually and just, you know, you don't have those smaller interactions of talking at the water cooler or going to lunch together or some of those kind of things, it's hard to virtually replicate those um, and build that trust and build those connections. And so it'll be interesting to see how that continues to progress going forward. Again, no part of me believes that we're going to really see a workforce that's the same way it was in 2017. But I don't think we all completely understand exactly what it'll be like in, in three years, assuming that we can truly get past the, the COVID side of things and having to you know, be as isolated as we kind of need to be these times. Yeah, I think a lot of us uh, looked at models like Zapier, which, you know, was probably one of the earliest to do fully distributed teams, you know, no central office. Um, and I used to call it sort of the underdog, but recently I think it got valued at $5 billion. So it's kind of finally uh, posted at a valuation that sounds about right. Um, and I love the tool, but, you know, their culture was one that figured out and unlocked some of the secrets to decentralized work. And when I was planning for the Viva team in particular in early 2020, like just pre-pandemic, 
my vision was, you know, decentralized, distributed, um, especially with housing, right? You're going to need some regional presence when you're um, attached to the actual asset, the underlying asset. Um, and also, though, you know, strategic retreats, right? To your point, having touch points and opportunities for teams to come together and then broader company-wide gatherings to come together. Um, and then also like, okay, well, work from home sounds nice, but home is not always the best place to work. So sort of co-working allowance and looking at more decentralized co-working structures where it's smaller clusters. I think there was an opportunity missed in the, and it's probably not missed, it's probably still there, in the like absence of a robust commercial leasing uh, appetite, you know, during and immediately post COVID, you know, I think co-working could say, well, why don't we decentralize and offer little co-working hubs or just uh, turbocharge some coffee shops, right? Put a few calling booths in coffee shops and give them a sticker that says they're part of the passport club, you know, uh, co-working passport. And I think there's gonna be those models that come about. I, I, I always get impatient with the pace, given all the entrepreneurship, <laughs> the pace of innovation in some of these niches. It's like, I just need like a bench of founders and, you know, and then uh, I think the capital would be there, but even a wall of capital be like, okay, you take this, go, you know, test it out um, and you help them out, right? So I think it's funny that founders are all in their vectors, but there are these niches that should probably be tackled. Yeah. But if we do that, it's an interesting way where people are, are, are choosing where they want to live, not being compelled. Um, yeah. No, and I think, too, that's one of the things that you know, I don't deal as much with the commercial space, but they had taught, heard, heard there that, like, obviously, how those spaces get used will be different, but that it might not, like, a lot, I think for a lot of people, the initial thought was, oh, there's going to be just this um, run on foreclosures in the commercial space, but not necessarily because, right, if you're, if you used to work at Google and you had this six foot by six foot cubicle. Well, now they're going to make it a 12 by six foot cubicle. So you don't have to be as close to your neighbor when you don't need to be. And, and now, ha you know, half the people will come in Monday and Wednesday, half will come in Tuesday and Thursday, or you'll switch weeks. And so there, there's just a lot of different ways that that, that work will look like in, in the future uh, as well. The other interesting component with that too, is it's now, like you mentioned about with teachers um, and it's, probably not something that, you, that can be used as effective to teachers because that does seem like it's going mostly back to in-person, but you now are like, oh, well, it used to be, hey, we would need someone from Austin to fill this role. And now if really the best person to fill this role is in Kansas City, yeah, you can work remotely and let's, you, we'll, you know, you fly in or we fly in or however that is for a week a month or, you know, a week a quarter and, and to have that in-person side of things. But other than that, we'd much rather have a higher quality person, even if you're not necessarily local. And so that is another component that will kind of change the work the workspace as well as then obviously um, housing and real estate going forward as well too. Yeah, if Texas had approved uh, financing for virtual education um, in the first legislative session versus the third before the start of school, I think we would have seen a much more dynamic set of choices. Um, but again, politics kind of trumps um, appetite for innovation there perhaps. And uh, they, they got to it later. And so maybe it'll just have a slower uh, upswing. But there is a company that I, I got to know uh, in time that was based in Austin and then had an exit, which um, was focused on this idea of, you know, why do we have to have a great calculus teacher in every hamlet in America? 
right? Specialized people, you can have the best sort of be multi-purpose across multiple districts or campuses or classes, and they can be remote. And then what you have are sort of facilitators, people who are really good at working with students and getting them motivated and keeping them focused, right? Which is, you know, certainly more than 50% of a, of a great teacher's job. Um, and maybe they also teach classes, but the idea is you could start to differentiate specialized content uh, instruction, direct instruction specifically, from people who are there to help students facilitate on the ground. Sure. Um, so they, yeah, yeah. At, that, at that point, you'd have more of an in-person tutor to actually help those people that need help with that specific subject. And, um, and right, and or again, right, in, in, I mean, that it would also get to my bigger point of changing the curriculum. Like, I mean, there's probably a lot of kids who take calculus because it looks good for a college entrance exam who will never need calculus in their life. And I was one of them and I don't ever use it. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, but yeah, right. Like, like you could, a, a class like that and some other classes, you could have a much larger virtual um, class to kind of get the subject matter to the students that way and then have more personalized help for what's needed and the time. And, and again, similar to having the workspace forced different that way too, you could have similar with schools of, again, we definitely want kids to go to school and have the social aspect because that's one of the most important things about um, going to school, but it could be potentially having some, you know, a certain amount of classes remotely, a certain amount of, you know, days remotely and, and different things to help um, also prepare kids for uh, real life because that's how real life's going to be going forward as well. Great. Well, uh, I, maybe to wrap up, I can talk a little bit more. And I, I'd love to hear your reflection on, since you are a realtor in Austin and, and a real estate agent, and we're kind of coming out of stealth with Viva, um, just kind of pitch you the premise and, and hear your initial thoughts, especially with respect to the Austin area. So what we do is we you know, take um, you know, investors in real estate and right now we're acquiring the property so it's vertically integrated so that we can build a really rock solid model um, before using sort of like third party landlords. But, you know, take investor money, acquire real estate, have this portfolio of homes, multifamily, some single family because people do aspire for that kind of American dream lifestyle. And then, you know, the renters by being good renters and having good, you know, community standards upheld, get a percentage of their payment and it's market rate, not for savings but they get a percentage of their uh, payment set aside each month, which right now is 8%. And that goes into an investment fund. So then they can become an investor in the portfolio if they so choose. So kind of that shared ownership model. And uh, we're over the next 30 days producing some and releasing some case studies that show if you were to do this for 30 years, you could build the equivalent of the value of a home that you were to buy without a mortgage, without any debt and with the flexibility that rent affords and, and a little bit more liquidity than, than a house typically affords. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's a very interesting concept. Again, back 20 years ago when I was in school um, and renting the, the, one of the places that I, me and some friends rented, you actually, they actually would put some money towards, if you wanted to, when you were done with your lease towards specifically buying a home. Like, so you had to then go buy a home. And obviously at that point in time as kids just out of college, none of us were in that, that stage of life. So it was money that, um, that we never were able to take advantage of. So this, this way, the fact that it's, that it's something that they get to reinvest into a fund like this is a very cool concept. And I think would also help, um, differentiate some of the other, other types of, 
um, corporate tr landlord trusts and stuff that are out there. Cause right. There's obviously, a, it's one of the, it's, it's a interesting juxtapose for someone like me again, going back to the people that have been, that have been hurt the most by the rising prices, which are just, you know, market forces, which I'm, you know, generally all in favor of market forces, but it does hurt that first time home buyer. And so we have, um, nationwide, especially all kinds of different renters buying up, um, you know, rental properties because they see it as a great long-term investment, which unfortunately then hurts that, that first time home buyer, but it's, you're not going to stop it. And so having this as an opportunity, as a way to, um, for someone who either just needs to rent because they can't afford to buy, or like you mentioned too, someone who wants to rent because they want the mobility and the flexibility. And that's something that I talk about as a real estate agent too. Like, yeah, I would, if it was me and I knew I was going to live in Austin for the next five years, I would still buy now that the market is not going to see a drop in value anytime soon. But if you, you know, want that flexibility because, you know, Hey, if, if the, if you think a shutdown is going to happen and now I can move to, I'm going to work remotely in someplace in Utah because it's even cheaper than Austin. Like, Hey, there's definitely something to be said for having that flexibility of where of being able to move and, um, live that kind of nomadic lifestyle. So it's a, it's a, it's a you know, it sounds like a cool concept as a way to help um, let people into the, have that benefit of still renting, but um, that potential for wealth creation. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I do think there are probably some market forces that are encouraging um, people, it's kind of like volatility. Like there are a lot of people who profit off of the a shorter lifespan of a mortgage and the shorter lifespan of a, of a homeowner. And it's hard to constrain those forces. So if, if we're holding assets continuously and letting people switch between them without having to make a buy sell transaction every time you kind of allow for a little bit of the um, uh, oxygen to get taken out of that sort of accelerating effect, because, you know, with every transaction, if the house has to go up in value by 20%, it's going to find a way. Um, you know, people are going to want to get paid and people are going to want to make their money every two years instead of every seven years. If, if that's the average transaction time, um, you know, five is kind of like right in the middle. Yeah, no, very much so. Um, how would people find out more about, um, that program and stuff for you guys? Yeah. So our website is viva.fund. Um, we've made it simple to kind of put up the value prop. Um, and we've got a, a wait list. Uh, we've got some initial units. If you click through and, and sign up, you'll get access to our list of properties as well. Um, we've got a wait list that's sort of uh, right there on the page and excited to grow our opportunities in Central Texas and throughout Texas uh, initially, given kind of the unfair advantages of starting where you live. And, uh, and as well, uh, since we're here and we're live, just email me at michael at uh, viva.fund. So, um, have at it and excited to talk to people. And really what I'm, what I'm really inspired by is especially in Austin and the surrounding area, there are a lot of people that maybe they have capital, maybe they're investing in real estate, maybe they're a fund that's pretty big, but people are very passionate about solving these problems. There is a tremendous amount of goodwill around um, how do we solve these problems so that we don't um, just make money, but also help build society through housing development. No, I definitely think that there is a, it has been a, sh a shift from the Gordon Gecko 1980s greed is good mentality to there. Yes, you know, ambition is good and, 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 and doing that is good, but there's ways to do that, that benefit um, even more people as well, too. So that's awesome that you guys are kind of taking that tact as well. 
Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you, Troy, and look forward to talking to you more about what you do. And thanks for having me on here today. I appreciate it, everyone. Hopefully everyone has a great day.